0: Welcome, everybody, to episode five of The Ascent of Board Games, where we talk about the history of board games, but mostly talk about games because we like games and
1: we like talking. I'm Brian. I like talking a lot.
2: That's true. You do like talking. I'm Joe. I, I like talking
1: a little bit, I guess. I'm Jason. I like playing games more than talking.
3: My name's Michael. And I'm Frank. I'll occasionally remember to talk. Frank nods a lot, which is not that helpful on the podcast.
4: <laughs> I'm going to start us out real quick because cool. I'm looking over at your notes, Jason. Is that just a list of like all of the Kickstarters that have come in since we last recorded? Like
1: Only one of those is a Kickstarter. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, to be fair, many of them are Kickstarters that I found out about after they went to retail. So only one of them is a Kickstarter I backed.
2: Ooh. This is a list of games you've purchased since we last recorded yeah. With human money? <laughs> uh, I
4: believe you've got a problem.
2: Yes. Yeah, he's running out of space on his <laughs>
1: shelf. It's a big problem. I actually kickstarted a storage system for all my board games. <laughs> oh! Excellent.
2: Excellent. Now now we've reached
1: the stage of meta
2: kickstarting. Oh, yeah. so. well, that's good. I mean, that's good. You fix your problem, then. You can keep buying games. No reason to stop. Well,
4: except that kickstarter probably won't deliver until <laughs> six true. years. From now, when he so. will have
0: twice as many games.
3: I don't see that he really has a problem.
0: Well, yes, yeah. yeah, because, that's, that's because you have an entire
1: floor of no, your house dedicated no, no, to board games. my problem is I don't have an organizational system for it like you do.
4: Do we need to like start employing the Dewey Decimal system Ooh, of board games?
1: Like
2: like, is that a thing that exists that it yet? It should
1: be. It should be. I mean, if I give Courtney long enough, he'll just make an app for it. So.
2: That's fair. That's fair. just a matter of time. Yeah.
0: You and Sandy should appify your board game directory database system.
3: Actually, we're using uh, just a commercial app. Oh, oh, which one? I'm curious Uh, Gamepedia It's um, (laughs) a a Mac only thing That's fine um, but yeah, it actually does uh, board game geek integrations. So you just oh, it just pulls a, from the API. It'll pull down from the oh, that's right.
4: And then you double. go down to the curator in Frank's basement. You give him the <laughs> number, and that curator will go and fetch it from excellent. It. excellent.
1: That is in the West Wing, shelf thirty-seven, row two. I thought it was just a whole bunch of monks he had down there. <laughs> it probably should be actually.
2: And I've never seen any of their faces though. So well, they're hooded monks.
3: Actually, they're all the chipmunks that the cats have brought in and <laughs> been lost oh, in the house somewhere.
0: I'm suddenly having a flashback to, what is that game, Setor Repo... You know the one with the Opera floating staircases yeah. going, in. and I, I feel like like there's a portal in your basement that leads to that whole
4: region, the dimension of board games. Pretty much, like, that seems likely. I would
0: be totally happy to live there. I'm just saying.
4: Yeah, except everything's made out of board games. It's okay.
1: Does Everything. Does that, Does that mean Frank has like a forbidden area <laughs> for his board game <laughs> collection? <laughs>
0: it's like what's
2: that? Yeah, behind area? <laughs> the secret
1: door. No, that's where we keep the obelisk. <laughs> These are the prototypes that never came out. <laughs> I mean, it, he's,
4: that, that's where you keep the Necronomicon game. game? Mm -hmm. you do not open that game. I mean, unless you want to have some fun. (laughs) So what's on this list of uh, Kickstarters that you didn't kickstart, Jason?
1: Uh, Let's see. So, I mean, the one that I did kickstart was, well, actually, no, I guess technically I did the the late backer thing, but uh, The Edge Dawnfall. It's a skirmish game. You have different factions with different capabilities. Ostensibly, you can play up to four players, but it's mostly a two-player versus game. What I like about it is it kind of gets rid of some of the traditional skirmish game issues, right? So, Traditional skirmish games, you pick your armies, you line them up on one side of the board, line up on the other side of the board, and slowly walk towards each other until you actually start slugging it out in the middle. Yeah, that's the best part of 40K. I thought it was rolling 400 dice at a time. Well, also, sure, but yes. you got to get to that point. <laughs> So to get around that, when you do set up, you alternate deploying your units anywhere on the board that you want. And the boards are broken out into large hexes, and I can't remember what the terminology is, but there's smaller hexes inside the larger hexes. And so... Yeah, it's like if you think of a giant hex, it's subdivided into, let's say, 12 smaller hexes inside of it, right? And so there's a mechanism where a larger-based creature can push smaller-based creatures out of those hexes. So a lot of positioning matters in the game. And so you're usually fighting over a resource called Crystals for charging up special abilities, using it to roll better dice, which anytime you give me Dice negation, I'm going to take it because dice hate me. And, uh, I don't know, it's fun. Uh, I I did uh, have the absolute worst first game I think possible because in the game when you're fighting, if I choose to attack Joe, I'm not attacking Joe. I'm initiating combat. And now we compare the initiative values on the two units. If Joe's initiative is higher than mine, Joe attacks first. And if I don't block all of that damage, that's the end of the combat. (laughs) So it really is like 40k. (laughs) So I, I picked the slowest faction in the entire game and fought the fastest faction in the entire game.
0: That
3: seems problematic.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I lost my my biggest unit, most valuable unit, in round two. <laughs> that was the end of that game. Huh. Yeah,
3: it's a trippy, trippy game. It's probably as complex as, say, Hero Escape. I mean, it's a very simple yeah. game, but it's much deeper. It's by the designer of Naroshima Hex, which is a personal oh. favorite. And so it's very, the factions are very, very different in how you have to approach them.
4: So with this... Like, hex within hex movement, it almost sounds like you have two scales of war game going on at
3: the same time.
4: Like, monstrous size versus, like, human size?
3: Really, the game only takes place in the large hexes.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's touching bases is more important for, like, who you can initiate combat with or who controls the crystals. So you're really trying to push people out of the way or push into places so you can hit things. But it's it's got an interesting kind of fluidity in the way that you move because your movement is based on large hexes. This unit can move three large hexes. They can land anywhere inside that large hex that they stop their movement in. So you have a lot of control over it that yeah, way. If there's room. If there's room, that's yeah. That's the uh, interesting. Huh.
0: That's cool. I'm, I'm having to live kind of vicariously right now because we're recording this in late September, and I just looked on my calendar to see the last time I had anything regarding board games listed, and it was the end of July. So uh, I, I don't have a lot of games to talk about. I am pretty excited that I just got the second wave Kickstarter for uh, Too Many Bones, which... Just rub it in. Just, you know, piles and piles of boxes of things. I, I literally haven't taken the couple hours it will need to organize and integrate it all to my existing set. I'm really looking forward to getting into that. And then other than that, most of my gaming has been on a computer from hotel rooms where I'm traveling for work. And that's not the topic of this podcast.
3: So I'm going to stop talking about it.
2: I'm
0: super excited to get too many bones back to the table.
2: I'm really excited to play the campaign mode. I just want to play the mech.
3: I think my two games have been Root, oh, which I've gotten two games of, which is an asynchronous... Asymmetric. Asymmetric, yay. Yeah, well, at least the way we were playing it, slightly asynchronous. <laughs> but yeah, it's an asymmetric... Right. I did play that. I have played a game.
0: I played Root. Oh Hooray! yeah, that's true. Yeah. Woo! Okay, I'm off the schneid.
3: <laughs> yeah, and it's... Uh, ps- simpler than vast. It's easier to understand, but the game seems to be a lot deeper. It's from the designer of a bunch of uh, classic war games, serious deep multiplayer war games. And it's hard. I don't know how to approach any of the races so far.
2: I really like it. I, I think it's extremely clever. I think all, all of the races, the way they interact with each other is really smart and the way they have to the way every faction has to kind of keep track of all the other factions and try to stop them so that they have enough time to win is really cool. Damn. Yeah. I really like the way the birds play, right? <laughs> it's like in the birds, right, you're constantly adding cards to your decree, and then when you reach a point where you can't fulfill a portion of your decree, you go into uh, turmoil, and your your monarchy is, like, deposed, and you discard a bunch of cards and lose a bunch of points. Um, but, like, if they get on a roll, right, they can just do, like, 10 actions in a turn and if the board is set up in a way that they can do them, they can start to run away with it a lot. Um, so every other faction needs to be paying attention to what they're doing.
4: Right. It's a it's a super fascinating built engine build until your engine completely falls apart. At which point you start building again. Yeah. So if that if that fall apart happens at an inopportune time, like the birds can be wrecked.
0: Or, of course, there was the game Frank and I uh, and a couple friends played where he was playing the birds and literally didn't have a collapse the entire game because none of us knew enough about the game to figure out how to stop him.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think the birds will be winning a lot of the first
2: games. Yeah, because it's easy for them to it's easy for them to win. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm looking forward to diving into it again. I feel like it's gonna be a game that is to me like, say, Chinatown is to Mike in that I really like it. I'm just not any good at it.
4: <laughs> I don't intrinsically understand the value of things without value, it's a big problem.
0: Negotiation is a is a thing. Things have values.
4: They certainly
2: do that are arbitrary. They certainly
4: do. <laughs> That's not my forte though.
2: I'm really excited for Root to get out the so that there's a the expansion that also shipped with the Kickstarter came with a mechanical cat variant, where the cats are the bad guys and everyone else is trying to beat them.
0: They're not literally mechanical cats. It's it's just like a an automated non-player thing, or are they actually
2: no? Robot they're cats? they're robot cats. They're awesome. reskinned okay. as now, robot now, cats. Now I officially yeah. love that game even. More. There's a different sheet for them where they're reskinned as robot cats <laughs> instead of actual cats, <laughs> and you are all trying to stop the robot cats. Okay, now are, now are I love monsters. that game even more. Okay, the art is cute and very thematic. And like the game is actually less, less complicated than Vast if you're trying to teach a bunch of people. The problem with Vast is if you want to teach someone Vast, you give them a, the rulebook for their faction say, Go with God, my son. And yeah. at least for Root, there's an, a number of shared concepts that everyone shares. And then you interact with those shared concepts in a different way, which I think is a better approach than Vast has in general from a teachability standpoint.
1: Yeah, I I feel like uh, with Root, because I got to play it with Joe and and Mike, uh, I think they do a better job of presenting the information because they have reference cards. Hey, you're playing this guy. This is how you stop the other factions, right? This is what they're going to try and do. This is how you stop them, which for a first time player, because that was the first time I was playing it, that was very helpful. I, I didn't help me stop Joe from winning the game. But, at least but I you knew what in I was
4: theory
0: what do. you should have been trying to do. It's,
4: it's interesting, Joe, because we've also had the opportunity to play with the expansion for best. We've gotten to see, who was it, the Unicorn and the Ghoul? Yes. Which was...
2: God, the Unicorn was so weird. <laughs> right. I still don't understand what was going on with the Unicorn. And again, I, that's
4: one thing I love about these asynchronous games. Asymmetric. Is, <laughs> or Asymmetric games. Thanks, Frank.
2: Um, we've
4: now... I've now played twice, and I just can't even fathom how the other factions that I haven't played are operating. And it's the same feeling we get when the first time we played Bast, where it's like, great, I know how to play my thing. No idea what's going on anywhere else in this game.
0: Yes, and that that is fine for most of them, but if you're playing the cave, it's like you have to figure out how to stop everybody else. And when you don't know what they're doing... I, I say that with only a slight hint of bitterness because I played the cave in our first game of Vast and was roundly defeated.
2: Yeah, that one's hard um, yeah. because, it, like, in, in essence, there are some factions, even even in Root, right, I think the mice and the birds are easier. The woodland creatures are harder and the vagabond is harder. I think the birds are probably the easiest, especially if they're unaffected in, in the early game. Yeah, in the like, if you don't know what you're doing, right? And I'm the cats sorry, the second. Yeah, I mean, the early games that you the are woodland learning creatures the woodland creature, the third, and then the I think the vagabond is probably the hardest. I mean, like I won my second game with the woodland creatures mm-hmm. mostly because I'd play at that point. I'd played three games of it, and I kind of had an idea of what everyone was trying to do, and so I knew how to stop some people, some stuff people were trying to do, and also. I had a much better idea of how to score points with the woodland creatures, which they're they're not obvious. Like they're kind no. of obvious when you mm. look at them. Like it's the first time I sat down. If I would have played them the first time, I would have been very lost. Having seen them played twice, I kind of got an idea of like, oh, this is some of the stuff they can do, and here's the things they're trying to accomplish. But like they're not. I don't feel like they're self evident. The birds are self evident. The cats are self evident. Yeah. Uh, and so another game I got to try out for the first time over the weekend was a game called Cockroach Poker which is fascinating. So one of the things I like about the game is you play it with a group of four to eight people. There is one loser and everyone else wins. And the way it works is you have a hand of a bunch of types of creatures, stink bugs and cockroaches and flies and spiders. On your turn, when it, when it becomes your turn, which I'll talk about how that happens in a second, you select a card and you give it to someone. You say, this is a spider. That person who you've given the card to has three options. They can say, I agree with you. And if they flip the card over and they are correct, the person who slid the card gets the card. right? So if I gave Mike a spider and Mike says, I agree, flips it over, it's a spider, I get the spider. Okay. If I give it to Mike and he says it's a spider and it's a not a spider, he gets whatever it was. Okay. And then he can also say, I don't believe you. And then again, if Mike is correct, I get the card, otherwise he gets the card. All right,
0: so you don't want to have cards is what I'm hearing. You
2: don't want to have cards. Okay. Um, Having cards is bad. Or Mike can say... Uh, I'm going to pass this on. He looks at it, and then he passes it to someone else, and then
0: declares the suit again.
2: Jason, have some flaws.
0: D- and, and he can declare something different. He can than declare you
2: whatever he wants. <laughs> the way you lose is you have four of any of the suits in front of you is how you lose. So obviously, once you get three, you have to now be extremely cautious about doing <laughs> functionally anything. anything. <laughs> Which makes the game have a very interesting tension to it. And it's a lot of fun. It's got a kind of light bluffing and... That doesn't sound like light bluffing. That sounds like, you know, it's Liar's entirely, Dice. It's, it's entirely, it's entirely <laughs> Liar's Dice functionally. And so it was, it's, it's a super cute game.
0: The other game I realized I played when we got to play Root with Frank is uh, Villainous, which is a Disney villain-based card game. Which
3: is asymmetric. It
0: is, in fact, a... <laughs> God damn it. All right. So I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything more about it for another couple months. You'll have to deal with
4: it. Is also asynchronous?
0: No. I, oh. In the sense that not everyone is playing at the same time,
3: yes. Right. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Everybody- I actually did play a cooperative game. So there. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, Big Trouble in Little China, which is... Uh, Kind of a cute mini campaign co-op game.
1: Oh, the board game, not the card. Okay, I was the board say, game, yes. Yeah. <laughs> not legendary. that legendary one yeah, we're but, trying to forget,
2: yeah. and yeah, pretended. Unfortunately, exist. the one
4: that was not a legendary encounters yeah. game.
3: No, this was a proper, like you know, Jack Burton and of uh, such miniatures game. It takes oh. place on two. Each game, it's about an hour and a half, so it's a pretty short game. First one, you're wandering around Chinatown merrily doing quests they're similar to vengeance you're basically collecting dice and submitting them to places to finish quests Uh, and then occasionally along the way you have to fight guys which is typical commit some of your action dice to roll stuff then you flip over to the side and go to the villains layer and actually have a big fight so you flip over like the actual board the entire board yes you clear it and done it's a new board but yeah you do both sides in a single session.
1: I thought Quartermaster General was really interesting. I don't know if anyone else has played that here.
3: I
2: haven't. So
1: let's talk about that. Then. Yeah, so Quartermaster General, it's Grigling Games, I think is the name of the company. You can play it two to six players. You basically have to play it six players. Each person is playing a country in World War II, right? So you've got U.S., uh, U.K., Russia, and Italy, Germany, Japan. And each country, based on how healthy their economies were at the beginning of the war, have a different number of cards. And they have different numbers of land forces and sea forces, the game's very simple, it's you, you play a card every round and you draw a card at the end. And so the game is a balance of, hey I'm playing Italy, Italy has the least amount of cards in the entire game, I need to know how to maximize all my points before my economy runs out and I'm just a giant drain on the rest of my allies. It's about basically maintaining supply lines and trying to take area control, basically you're taking over world capitals to earn points. And so what's fascinating about it is, of course, all the cards are mimicking things that happened in the war. And you can do crazy things like, hey, I'm playing the U.K. I put down a card that lets America spawn two uh, naval uh, forces off the coast of the U.S. And it completely takes Japan by surprise. But what's nice about it is each, each country plays very, very differently. Japan's all about response cards, which is like you play them face down. When the trigger occurs, you flip it up. You're like, haha, your ship gets sunk. You had no way to deal with it. So for a game that's playing functionally through World War II, it's very fast.
0: <laughs> when you say they, they play very differently, are you suggesting that it's asymmetrical?
3: It is totally.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Okay, just checking. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's one I'd I like to get to the table more often because I've only played it like three times, and I do not recommend it with two players because you always have to play with all the factions playing three countries by yourself, not, not the best experience.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine how playing that with six is probably the only way to play it then. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah.
3: And yeah, I've played it three or four times, oh, yeah. and right. it's kind of like, it feels like Axis and Allies, because of the scope and everything, but the turns are so fast. Mm-hmm. You do your one action. There, you might have like three troops, and that's your entire army, so everything's really focused we
1: still, on... We should play it. This sounds like fun. I'm, I'm yeah, ready. totally. Yeah, the, the combat is hilarious. It's like, if you're adjacent to an enemy unit and you play a card that says land battle, they're just dead. <laughs> <laughs> there's no rolling dice. That's it. Dice. You're done.
4: <laughs> well, if there's no rolling dice, I'm pretty sure I, I can
0: Ben's do that. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> so the main thing we wanted to talk about today, now that we've, we've rambled for a bit, is uh, cooperative games. There are obviously a whole lot of uh, cooperative games out now. They're a very popular style of game. But I know at least Frank and I are old enough to remember the the dark times when there weren't many cooperative games, and uh, at least in the mainstream. And when they came out, it was kind of a new and exciting thing. And as usual, Frank has been able to dig into the dark reaches of Board Game Geek in his own memory and collection and tell us about some of the earliest examples. So uh, I guess we'll let him take it from here.
3: Yeah. When you start looking, or when I started looking for the first game, uh, it came back to family pastimes. They're a Canadian family-owned, family-run, family-build company that's been making games mostly that they sell to educational toy stores, bookstores. And their first game was Together by a designer owner, Jim Decov, which isn't really much of a game. This is back to 1971, so it's really, really hippie-ish. Basically, you get a bunch of cards that represent world problems, and you solve them, you know, for kids. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's barely a game. By the time you get to the third game, which is called Community, you actually get something that resembles uh, Monopoly in some ways. You have a resource. You move around the board. You have to commit that resource to putting up your buildings, and you actually have to finish all your buildings before enough bad ideas come in. There are bad ideas cards that are sprinkled (laughs) in the decks, and if anyone has 10... Sorry, bad feelings oh. cards. Yeah, if you get too many bad feelings,
0: yeah, they, they have harshed they, the vibe of they've your harshed
3: community. They harsh the vibe. <laughs> that would be 1972, so you're definitely <laughs> harshing
1: a vibe there. So I was just curious. Like, I mean, of course, I haven't played this game, but from what I was reading on it and from the the card images I was able to see, it almost feels like it's a more of a a, a teaching experience for children, like geared more towards teachers then like a, I mean, I understand it's family pastimes as a company, but it, it almost felt like something teachers would be using for students just to kind of encourage cooperation and collective problem solving.
3: Correct. And when That's, I was publishing the Games Journal, I had Jim Deca write an article on his whole background uh, motivation for doing co-op games. Um, he's a basically a a reverend uh, who works with the occasionally of uh, youth groups and such, and he was bemoaning the fact that there just weren't non-competitive games. Period. So he started doing a company.
2: So it says detailed rules for teacher's preparation, interaction, and final evaluation. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's,
0: it's it's purely a, a teaching. Like, this it totally game felt is like purely, it. purely a teaching game. And it it's very clearly. I mean, looking at the artwork, it is clearly something that somebody hand did with, I'm guessing crayons. You know, actually. And I don't want to make that sound bad because it's, it's you know, it's well done and everything, but it, it's clearly all, you know, hand-done artwork by not a I professional mean, graphic designer. I like the idea
2: of imagining that you take one of these cards, which is like medicine or kindness or religion, and use them to solve one of these problem cards. Mm-hmm. So I want to know how you use water... To solve famine. No,
0: water is for drought. I want to know how,
2: how to use water to solve not free. You
0: drown the slavers.
2: Right. I, that sounds like a great problem. See, uh, I'm in see, for you're this game now. Solving, <laughs> Brian. Exactly. You're already problem I actually, solving. I feel like
4: we're well on our way to re-releasing uh, t- together. <laughs>
1: we'll, make a, we'll make a legacy game out of it. You know? <laughs> together legacy. Hey, look, we've already solved slavery using
4: water. I mean, yeah. what, what else
2: is what, there to what, do? What really? Else do we want? We here. just need
1: some stickers and some cards to tear up. It'll be great.
4: I mean, yeah. no, I, I hear what you're saying, Brian. That box art looks like it has a target audience in mind. I mean, I mean to goes. be
0: fair, in this time period, there was not a lot of really, you know, sophisticated history of board game graphic design. That, oh, know.
3: no, no. When you get to the 70s, there are an awful lot of educational, very handmade games. Dear Lord, if you look at Save the President, it's just a an abomination of graphic design all I mean, the way like, across.
2: This was clearly... Colored by crayon, but you know what? They had a bunch of hands of different shades on the. No, yeah, I mean, it you know i say, you know, they were trying. They were yeah, trying no. real hard. So. And it's
3: actually possible, given the production, the fact that you know his kids were helping to produce the game and they were doing it in their garage, that those are hand colored. So
2: it looks that it looks like they're hand colored, <laughs> yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. It just looks like it.
0: Of course, they're hand colored. Their hands.
2: Yes, yes, you're fired. Yeah. Get out.
4: <laughs> well, like as a resident teacher in this room the pro at teaching actual children like that is something that is not a a new concept and i mean we still implement that even today just using board games to teach life skills like cooperation because God knows we need it when we're five.
1: Yes, we do. I was listening to a podcast that was arguing that children should learn the game Diplomacy
0: <laughs>
1: in, <laughs> in school. I'm like, no,
4: wow. I mean, no. I mean, it's a it. like it's a fascinating <laughs> way to teach
1: wo- uh, World War and permanently ruin that classroom forever. I, I, I mean, sure. <laughs> and have you have
0: you ever seen the movie Battle Royale? Because I mean, that's what yeah. you'd get. As after far they... as I
2: as far as I could tell, John and Brian's friendship has never been the same after we played Diplomacy. All same, I was right?
0: trying to teach him how the game worked,
1: <laughs> and you certainly. He certainly did, and he will never forgive you for No, it. he will not. Please tell me it involved a written contract that you had. No, 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 no.
2: we didn't write it out. We just Verbal's had a deal. Binding. Verbal's binding. <laughs>
0: so yeah family pastimes uh, a lot of cooperative stuff again you know house produced neat ideas I don't know how
3: I mean they've been doing it for like what 40 years uh, and they're still making games so I mean there's like 70 or 80 games all co-op
0: and they have at least one app game that we found out about yeah
3: company that made
4: the video
0: we are going to include in the show notes a fascinating video of a a gentleman and his hand puppet frog uh, visiting the family pastimes uh, factory quote unquote I'm not really Going to say anything more about it? Because I don't think I can, but we'll share the Watch link. Watch it your you own can own risk. For yourself. <laughs> that video speaks for itself. It really does. It really does. But it, you can see it moving its lips when it speaks for itself, so it's okay.
3: Next up would be Beyond Competition, which is a game book, really just a book of six games by Sid Saxon. So we get our first name designer that everyone should know. And if you don't know, well, uh, whatever. Uh, Beyond Competition consisted of six pen and paper games and a lot of copies of each.
4: Frank, I don't know who Sid Saxon is.
3: Ooh. Get <laughs> first fe- out. <laughs> There's this game called Acquire, you may have heard Oh of it. yes, I do like Acquire. <laughs> and but a lot of very, other
0: games.
4: One very specific edition of Acquire, and I, I don't know which edition that is. But it's,
3: it's the, one one
0: with the, the, it's the, the Avalon Hill one. It's
2: one with the good components, yeah. Okay.
3: He did a whole series of game books aside from some hundred games that he published. oh, But this was one of the first you know, really solid. They're fairly abstract games. Um, but worth finding if you can locate a copy.
4: I think it's interesting because this is not the first time when talking about these games from the pre modern board game revolution where games have been packaged in a six and one or eight and one. Like that's just a <laughs> thing that we don't see as much anymore. Like I there's something about that trend that happened in the like late 70s early 80s that I'm noticing as we do this podcast which I find really interesting.
0: I think some of it was, you know, they were games that were in many ways too small to sort of package and sell on their own. Uh, and I mean, especially a guy like Sid Saxon, who was super prolific, just like has a bunch of ideas. Is like, I, I'm not going to develop each of these into its own individual board game, but here's a, a package of some of them that we can, you know, share out to people and, and get them involved in seeing a, a wide variety of stuff.
4: Yeah, but just compare that to like the modern day micro
0: games that we see. Like,
4: I feel like a lot of those tiny box games that we play, Hanabi, Love Letter, like those could have all been packaged like that in the late seventies. Sure, it's, true, it's yeah. just that
0: now. Now we're at a point where board games are popular enough that they can go on to huge success individually. Yeah, yeah they I can hold that.
3: their own. But also, a lot of these are abstract, um, and they're much more abstract than modern games. When you do a complete abstract like. Uh, beyond competitions pretty vanilla as far as theme very very vanilla as far as theme and it's easier to just package those because all you need is a board and some counters
2: yeah I think one of the things that board games have learned over time is that theme is really important right so like If Love Letter didn't have the theme that it has on the initial release, like who knows what how the reception would have been, right? But the theme is ridiculous. Like if if they had started with Batman Batman, Love Letter? (laughs) Right, like if they started with Batman Love Letter, no, none of us would have ever played that game ever once, right? (laughs) But no, they started with Love Letter, and Love Letter's theme is ridiculous and hilarious.
4: Now, Frank, you were saying that um, Beyond Competition was like a series of books?
3: Correct. There were, I think, three other books in the rough series. Uh, Beyond Solitaire games of art beyond words and calculate calculate being calculate being no you needed a calculator for that because it was all entering things in and specific numbers and
0: and then you turn it upside down and it says boobies
3: (laughs) (laughs) probably yeah
0: (laughs) they see now that should have been in our electronic games episode Mm
3: -hmm. yeah yeah i mean throughout the 70s and 80s almost no one did co-op games it's still pretty much it, when you look back it's pretty much family pastimes mm-hmm. and nothing the one other company i could find that was doing stuff is a german company called herderspiel they did uh, two or three games the wonder garden and uh, fisher uh, i actually have played and have a copy of Fisherspiel. they're very simple abstract games you roll a die it causes some timer to move down and then you're doing your little task. In the case of Fisher Spiel, it's moving boats around an island, trying to get so many of them next to a group of fish, in which case you can fish them and just fish them before the random dice run out the clock. Pretty basic, cute kid.
0: It's interesting that that most of the stuff in this period, you know, the cooperative games were really aimed at children. It, it's like the, the intent was, well, adults want to compete. Adults who play games want to win, but we can let the children have cooperative stuff.
2: So the next game we should talk about, which kind of led to the, the modern renaissance, really, of cooperative board games, was Lord of the Rings, released in 2000 by Hasbro, designed by Reiner Knizia. Rainer designed like a hundred million. Yeah, he's he's it. all over no, no. the place. He designed still- like a hundred million specifically Lord of the Rings games. Like he no. has three of them, that are at least. He has two of them that are literally named Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Like on the board game geek, it's like, hey. Be aware that this is not the other Lord of the Rings game, also by Reiner Knizzi, that was released earlier and is really a kid's game. Super weird. Anyway. But yeah, when
0: when this one came out, they were
2: like, okay, well now you're doing all the Lord of the Rings games forever. Apparently. <laughs> In
4: addition to all the other games that
3: he, Reiner And like, Knizzi- this is yeah. definitely,
2: this, I think this is definitely the first cooperative game I played, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um... And so you are you as players are all hobbits trying to get the ring to Mordor and you have to go through a series of board encounters where you have to play cards with symbols to kind of move you along a track. You go through Moria, you go through the... I mean, there's a place where you stop at
0: Rivendell and that's basically your first big chance to get a lot of loot and distribute it around.
2: The way it works is you've
3: got a corruption track at the middle and obviously when one of the Hobbits meets Sauron on the Corruption Track. That's one of the instant loss conditions.
2: Uh, I think it's only the ring bearer. I think and anor- other Hobbits Oh, you're right, can... yeah, other Hobbits you're can You're out of the game, right. but you're you out the game. your has, teammates have a lost. It has lost. player elimination, which is But in is general,
3: you have scenario boards with one track yep. and one pawn representing the expedition. Then you've got a bunch of small tasks you've got to do. Like, you've got to spend so much time walking and get your walking path done. So you've got to finish for each board the main board and then all the sub Right, so there's
2: walking and there's exploring yeah. and there's combat on I mean, the all each of the boards right it's so the forest and feet and swords
0: and also uh because it, they wanted to support five players you have the frodo sam mary and pippin and also if you have five players somebody gets to play fatty bulger which, right. is, which, which is which is
2: classic, classic. <laughs> the deep cut the the deep, fifth deep yes cut.
0: exactly but yeah so this was really uh i think the the first major mass market uh co-op game and and it really did sort of start a cascade of people saying oh wait a minute we can have grown ups doing cooperative games and trying to beat the game together um it's you know pretty simple by today's standards but still there was there was a lot of game there i would still play it it's 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 still quite a good it's game
2: it's definitely not a, like a free win kind of game right like oh no can, it was not you, easy you can definitely lose any time you play right mm-hmm. so
0: and interestingly, they also later came out with, uh, well, there were several expansions for it, but one of them actually allowed it to be a player playing the forces of evil. Yes. So it could become a one versus many game. See previous episode. So the next sort of big steps in uh, in co-op gaming came uh, in 2005. Uh, and there were a pair of them that came out there that year that really sort of made their mark. Uh, and the first one I want to talk about is Arkham Horror. Interestingly, uh, and this was news to most of us who aren't frank, um, interestingly, this was not the first Arkham Horror game, and, and Frank can tell us a little bit about the original
3: one. Yeah, the Richard Lanius, who's well known as the designer of Arkham Horror, and uh, a fellow named Charlie Crank co-designed the original '87 version of Arkham Horror. It was more of a roll and move, but if you're familiar with Arkham Horror, the concepts are there. Basically, gates are opening all about Arkham. Monsters are pouring out into the streets. The monsters will move around the streets while you run around to the various buildings to grab weapons and items to kill the monsters. And then jump through the gates for two turns to close them from the other side.
0: And it was a co-op, I
3: think. Fully assume. co-op and hmm. definitely for adults.
4: Well, and a lot of those same concepts were then used
0: to make the
3: Fantasy Flight. Oh, I'm, totally, yeah.
0: It, it's clearly an elaboration and extension of that original game. It's not just a... a it's a pretty thing.
3: much a, mostly a slash and burn on the mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the concepts and everything are there. Well,
4: they took out the, the roll and move component. So in the Fantasy Flight 2005 version, you move from major location to major location where you have encounters where bad stuff can happen to you. You're trying to fight monsters, get through gates, where you then spend... Two turns, not doing anything exciting, and then you come back onto the board where you, good stuff can happen
1: to you. For me, this was a this is back when I was first getting back into board games, and this was kind of the the high water mark for complexity mm-hmm. from the the people that I was playing games with. Because they're like, "Do you have all day? We're gonna play Arkham Horror." I'm Like all day. Oh my goodness, this is <laughs> such a such a complex game, and like mechanically, it's not super complex, but it is a fairly lengthy game. <laughs>
0: Especially when you have those people who want
2: to add all the expansions.
4: Yeah, this game did suffer from a lot of bloat with expansions. Well, I mean, this it's...
2: game, you know, for uh, cemented the one large and one small box expansion, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but, I
0: mean, it was neat. Uh, it was thematically pretty cool because there were basically different areas and locations on the board, and each location functionally had its own deck of encounters. So if you went to the old Curiosity Shop, you would have different kinds of things to deal with than if you went to the Miskatonic University Library or whatever.
4: One of the innovations that I think really helped with the expediency of this game, they actually later released a app that handled the cards for you. Mm-hmm. So nice. you didn't have to shuffle the deck for each of the locations, like, again, we talked in our uh, episode about deck builders, the setup and breakdown of those cards, this game definitely suffered from that problem.
0: Yeah, well, this was the golden age of Fantasy Flight, you know, and honestly, it's, it's still Fantasy Flight's the same way, that, you know, every Fantasy Flight big box game includes 87 different decks of cards.
4: And all of them are different sizes. Well, they have yes. to sell those sleeves
0: for you, so... <laughs>
3: The 87 game just used a single page of charts and you rolled for each location. <laughs> oh, they've location.
0: learned. They've learned. Yeah, but,
4: but how do we sell sleeves for a single page of charts? I don't... You can't, you can't, this is not marketable yeah. at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I also think this was one of the first games, and Shadows Over Camelot is the other one we'll talk about in a minute, that had sort of what we generically call the bad guy phase, where basically the players do their things and then the game does things to make you make things difficult for you you know so basically all the players would do their stuff and then whatever great old one was coming to destroy arkham would you know make your lives miserable
4: now uh, i really personally like Arkham's theme uh, especially I think Richard Lanius is credited for creating a lot of these characters which Fantasy Flight has taken hold of with all of their other games I don't Possibly, know exactly yeah. what was involved yeah. all, with that all
0: of the Arkham Eldritch Horror the CCG everything you kind of reuse these same characters um, because they can reuse the art uh, and also you know they've then they've got miniatures and, and they're you know a pretty cool and diverse set of characters okay. certainly one of the good early ways you get a bunch of people together and all work together to defeat something that was that was cool,
1: and I think it's worth noting. And I, as I was going through researching these games, one thing I noticed that seems to be common to a lot of co-op games: very high player counts. This one can go up to eight players, and you'll find with most of the ones we're talking about, five players or more isn't uncommon, which is kind of rare. In yeah, board for games.
0: for you know competitive board games, any more than four or five is rare. Um, so yeah, that
1: is that is interesting.
4: As a side note, Arkham Horror. Can play. Yeah, eight.
1: I never said you should. Yes.
2: <laughs> I've done it before. Why? I have a lot of friends. Just rub it in. Yeah, sure. <laughs> fine. That's EAR.
4: Yeah, I think at that point, the game gets kind of bogged down, and you you suffer from so much downtime yeah. between
2: your turns. Yeah, it's a little nonsense. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think even Richard was lobbying them not to say eight and stop it at six, or a more reasonable number. Yeah.
0: And then the next one, which which also came out in 2005, is uh, Shadows Over Camelot, which was by Bruno Cathala and uh, Sergei Leger, came out from Days of Wonder. And that was another interesting co-op that broke a lot of ground. Basically, you're, you're all knights of the round table, traveling around. There are a number of different quests you have to do. You have to try and recover Excalibur, find the grail. There is a black knight that you have to do. There are Picts and Saxons invading that you have to deal with. Everyone is sort of split off. You are cooperating in some cases on these individual quests or some of them you have to do alone. Depending on how you do with the quests, you will gain a variety of white and black swords that are sort of placed on the round table. And at the end of the game, if you have more black swords than white swords, then you have lost. This one also had the, the sort of bad guy phase. I, I think this was the first game that actually had it happen at the end of every player turn.
2: Yeah, usually, I think so.
0: You took your turn, you did your action on a quest, and it's usually very quick because you're moving to a place and playing a card or two, and then you drew a, a an evil card functionally, and it would make something miserable happen. So that was sort of a self-balancing mechanism for the number of players. So you had more people doing the quest, but you also had more bad things happening. Catapults were uh, besieging. Camelot. That's, that's the one that if you got a certain number, you would lose, yes. right, if, they, if you ever got all 12 <coughs> catapults out. So you were constantly running back and forth trying to fight off the catapults and the other invaders uh, and do stuff while trying to finish quests, and there were some of the quests where if you left in the middle of one, you'd have to reset it.
4: And this was one of the first co-ops I've ever played. I've played it exactly one time, (laughs) but one of the things I remember really liking about it is how it had each of those quests was a different corner of the board, and it felt like you were fighting a war on multiple fronts. Mm -hmm. And so it, it encouraged communication between players to just tag team these different things.
0: Uh, I don't have any Grail cards, but I can come over here and help you find Excalibur kind of thing. The other, I think, big innovation that this uh, led to was the the idea of a hidden traitor because basically the concept is one of the the knights may secretly be working against you. So basically there would be loyalty cards handed out at the start of the game and basically there would be loyal cards equal to the number of players plus one trader card shuffled in. So maybe you don't have a trader at all, but maybe one of you is it and they're basically trying to make everyone else lose. It's an optional part of the game. You know, you don't have to play with it if you want to play it as a strictly co-op, but I think it was the first place that idea... Was thrown in in a co-op game, and that has led to a whole separate genre of games and a whole separate podcast episode, which some people really like and some people are less fond of.
2: So I think it's also worth mentioning that um, in most co-op games, you tend to have each character ha- tends to have slightly different starting conditions. Mm-hmm. And *Cam uh, Out* was definitely one of the first games to do that. Where each player, each character would have player powers, right? So they get to violate the rules of the game in some way. Mm-hmm. And as you kind of, as we kind of look through the rest of the co-op games, especially even like the next one on the list, right? It function exactly copies that mechanism. Yeah, it was, um, but it like was almost a good every, game. but almost every co-op game has that, right?
4: No, that's a really good point. We didn't talk about it with Arkham, but it, that also had individual starting states for the characters, which we had not seen
2: prior to. So the next game on the list, um, as I was referring to earlier is uh, ghost stories uh released in 2008 by repost productions designed by Antoine Bauza. Uh, And you are a group of Taoist monks who are trying to stop a bunch of ghosts from invading your monastery. And it is a very simple game and an extremely difficult game. I'm not convinced it can
1: be beaten. Joe shares me it can.
4: I have done it more than once. The way that I was introduced to Ghost Stories, and this was actually, now that I think about it, one of the first games I played with you guys. I think you're right. I had come over with a brand new group of board gamers and was told... This game is incredibly hard. You have to work together. It sounded fascinating. We probably won't win. We're playing through it and we win to which point everybody just stops and we're like, okay, well we have to write this down. And in the back of the instruction manual is a chart where you can keep track of your game records of who was playing and did you win or lose what your score was and forever an in infamy in the back of Brian's copy of ghost stories, We have the first time that I've played Ghost Stories and won. At which point, I decided I could never play this game again (laughs) if it really is as hard as you say, because. I've already won. I beat it. I did
0: it. You know, I, I have to actually check. I think that may still be the only entry in that log <laughs> in my copy of the game. I've, I've won it again with other people's copies, but yeah, it is a a really difficult game. Basically, every turn more ghosts are showing up, and you have to sort of jump around the board, try and defend them off, and collect all the resources you need to defeat them, and roll the right number on dice, and keep the tiles from getting haunted. It is winnable. All I know is that I downloaded the app version, which is actually a very good conversion, a while back, and I, I played it regularly for a long time. I, th- I think I'm over 100 games on it, and I have yet to beat the app on easy mode.
4: Doesn't the app also have uh, pass and play uh, capabilities yes, it does. That you can do that. Oh, wow. That'd be I awesome.
0: Yeah. Really good. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good conversion. That'd be Refos fun in for in a road general. trip. So, yeah, Ghost Stories was... Uh, Certainly a different kind of vibe from co-op games because it's it's, it's got a modular board. The layout's always different. Um, you know, the individual player powers are a big deal. You actually get a choice of two different powers for each character. But I mostly remember it for being punishingly difficult.
4: Frank, before we start recording, you and I were discussing about how a lot of co-op games are players versus randomness. And I think this is the first time in our, at least our research, where we see almost Every component of the game being randomized because it has a starting layout of the board that is a random arrangement of tiles,
0: mm-hmm. and their relative positioning is a big deal because movement is very slow.
4: And then on top of that, the random deck of monsters. Right, the big
0: bed you're facing at the true, end yeah. can have one of a number of different random incarnations that you have to fight. So yeah, it is. It is a big old pile of random, but and that is my form- one
3: worry about Ghost Stories is that part of the winning condition may be just the random has to line up in your favor
2: i think that is true right because like in that game you have to press your luck to be able to win and pressing your luck is rolling a die and if that die does not come with the right color you lose and like there are i think in every game i've played of it, there are five or six flash points where it's like okay at this point i roll this die and either the game will continue or the game will be over and if you get enough of those yeah you just lose right
0: it yeah. could be over real quick. Well, the thing is, it's not necessarily over real quick. It's just that you're in a state that you cannot recover from. Right. So there is a certain amount of death spiral going on in the game. It's like, well, we're not going to be able to recover from this, but it's going to take them a while to actually kill us.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, the, Ghost Stories definitely has a point where you can get to, it's like, oh, well, the game is now over. We're just going to play a couple more rounds, and then the game will end.
3: Right. Yeah, And that's where I think Shadows over Camelot is more controlled. It is, for because sure. Because of it. it's basically deck-driven. Mm-hmm.
1: So same year as Ghost Story is a game called Space Alert, uh, released by Czech Games Edition, uh, Vlada Chvaltal.
0: We're we're very sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, essentially, uh, you're you're playing. It's a cooperative game where you're playing as androids on a spaceship out. In th- oh no, you're people. You're trainees. I thought it was androids. No, you're no no, no
0: You're human beings.
1: Oh, that makes it even more grim, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yes. All right. Well, you're playing as hapless crew in this uh, horrifically awful part of space where essentially every round the computer is warning you about um, threats that are coming down the the pipe. And you have a series of cards where you need to get your guys to particular parts of the ship to activate the missile launcher, uh, wiggle the mouse on the computer so that the screen doesn't go blank, or fire guns or charge up energy to prepare yourself to deal with these threats. And where the game kind of gets interesting is it comes with a soundtrack, that has a basically a 10-minute sequence of, uh, that you're playing out in real time, trying to figure out, you know, here's all the, the commands that we're issuing, here's all the things we're doing, that 10 minutes ends, and then you see how badly you screwed everything up. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's really neat because as you're going through the initial thing the first time, the, the soundtrack or the app, which is the way we usually play it now, will just tell you, hey, there is an extreme level threat in Sector Blue, and you flip a card off the extreme level threat, and you figure out what it is that you're dealing with. And the main part of the game during that 10 minutes is you're you're setting up program movements. You're figuring out what you're going to be doing in any given phase. And so you have to not only figure out, okay, well, I need you to run that gun, but in order to run that gun, we need to get energy over here. In order to get energy over here, we need to reload the main reactor over here and we have to make sure those things all happen in the right order before the ship gets there so it's basically a a constant real-time puzzle solving cooperative thing and very often something will go hilariously wrong which has a cascade effect that just ruins everything why did you go right (laughs) for
4: example um two people can't use the elevator at the same time they are single person elevators Mm -hmm. for reasons (laughs) and so if two people try
0: Whoever goes first is fine. The other person basically loses a turn waiting for the elevator, so all of their other cards are now one phase later than when they were planning to do them. And
4: hilarity ensues.
0: Yes, exactly. Because there are usually more things to do than there are people to do them. It's like, okay, well, I've shot this ship three times. It's dead now, so now I'm going to go over and do this other thing. Well, if you didn't get energy because somebody fell down the stairs, then you didn't finish killing that ship. But since you've pre-planned your movement, you're still saying, okay, well, I'm going to go do this other thing now while this ship comes in and rams you with its its giant space ram.
2: The thing that's hilarious about this game, I find, is that you have to keep this really complicated board state in your head or at least pieces of this really complicated board state in your head because obviously... Nothing is happening while you're planning all your movements. Nothing on the board is actually happening, right? You're just like talking with each other about the things that are going to be happening and trying to make sure everything is taken care of. And so you're like, okay, cool. I have this perfect vision of how this is going to work. And then, uh, invariably, someone does something that is outside of your vision. Like, I thought you were loading the main reactor on turn three. What's going on?
0: Yes. Or, or 30 seconds before (laughs) the end of the round, someone says, hey, did anybody blow up that asteroid?
2: (laughs) Right. You've got wow, you've got
4: (laughs) one fifth of this perfect vision. Yes, that's that's
2: the thing that's great about it, right? You're trying to desperately share it with everyone else, but you to do it in real time. It's, it's one of my... It could easily be my top 20 games. I, I love this game. Yeah, it could easily be my top 20 and games. And
3: it gets around one of the big problems with co-ops.
2: Yes. Yeah, there is no way you can be an alpha player for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's literally impossible.
1: Now, uh, one part, and again, I bought the original version of this, actually my first Gen Con, um, You know, on the CD, (laughs) remember CDs? Uh, As you get into the later missions, uh, you get into communication disruptions, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. where you have a period of that 10 minutes where you can't talk to your your Mm co-players. So you're just sitting there staring at each other, gesturing wildly, (laughs) trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what you need them to plan out for this next phase. Well,
4: and I think that the 10-minute recordings that came on that CD, like, really well thought out because what the modern day app has done is it's taken each component that went into those and you can now on the fly randomize it so if you wanted to say hey app i want to have a game that has more of this uh, radio silence period like you can adjust that whereas the cd was kind of a set state and the randomness was determined by the decks you flip what modern innovation has done is now said hey even that could be randomized, which yeah. is kind of
0: awesome. The one problem I have with this game when it first came out is that there are a lot of rules. There's a lot of learning to be done. And if you're not playing with the same group of people, introducing someone new to it is kind of a time consuming process. You have to totally restart you've got yeah. all of the, the advanced rules in your head and you're sort of making them drink from the fire hose to learn it. But if you've got people who know how to play it, it is tremendous fun. And also, as is true of pretty much all of Ladajvotli's games, except possibly through the ages, the rulebook is literally laugh-out-loud funny to read. It's presented in character. All of his rulebooks are great.
4: I think this was the first game that I had ever played where the rulebook that teaches you is a tutorial with a story about cadets who have no training whatsoever being sent up in the space because, you know, budget
2: cuts i really want to sit down and play through the campaign version of this game it looks hilarious and in my infinite free time
4: (laughs) and i think the best part is if you don't read the rulebook having to at three periods during the course of this real-time event if you don't read the rule book it will make no sense as to why you have to go to the computer and make sure it doesn't fall asleep
0: right and the great reason behind that is that basically there is a screensaver that will kick in on the bridge computer if it's been idle for too long. And when it does that due to a a software bug, it will actually shut down all the other systems on the ship. So the question they ask in the rulebook is, why don't we disable the screensaver? Because one of our sponsors has their logo on that screensaver. So instead you have to periodically send someone running to the bridge to jiggle the mouse to keep the computer alive. It's just, it's tremendous fun.
3: I just want to point out that it is an asynchronous game. (laughs)
2: You are correct. You are correct. It is an asynchronous game.
3: Hooray. So uh, I
0: think the solution here is for us to play a Space Alert campaign and live stream it on Twitch.
2: Yeah, that'd be awesome. A game that we could never, ever forget (laughs) is Pandemic, which came out in 2008, uh, designed by Matt Leacock and released by Z-Man Games. And obviously, it's... It, it it definitely is i would argue pandemic is one of the games that kind of shot cooperative games into the limelight
0: yeah it was it was you know obviously there was the initial rush after lord of the rings and pandemic was i think the big boost
2: this came out three years
4: after the previous two games we talked about shadows over camelot and arkham horror so like this was right in that revolution of co-op games
2: and weirdly again uh, it also came out in 2008 the same year as space alert so it's like, again A couple years, and then two big cooperative board games come out the same year.
0: Right. Again, obviously, for for people who are listening to the podcast, we're not saying that this is the list of every cooperative board game ever. But as far as, you know, major milestones and at least the stuff we've been doing, these are the ones that leapt out. And so we had um, Shadows Over Camelot. We had Arkham Horror. There were some expansions for each of those. And then as those were starting to get played out, sort of the next generation came in. And Pandemic is certainly one of the games that has been consistently very high-rated on Board game Geek, and is one of the sort of modern classics, I would say.
2: Well, when you think about games that are elegant, Pandemic is one of the most elegant games I've ever played. Like, it is an extremely tight game, is and the rules are very, very straightforward, and the way you win is very, very straightforward, and there's just a whole bag of random you're fighting against.
0: Yes, it's very straightforward, but not easy. Yes.
3: But actually, it's a pretty controlled and predictable random, yes. and most of that is because the, uh, the infection cards keep you recycling part of the deck. So you have a good idea exactly what you're going to have to be dealing with.
4: I think that is actually one of my favorite things about Pandemic is how that infection deck functions. As you are drawing off cards, when an outbreak occurs, you're going to take that discard pile of cards you've already seen, shuffle it up, add one random card from the bottom of the deck just to spice things up, and then put that discard pile right back on so
0: the top. So all those cities that are already in bad shape are getting worse.
4: Which thematically works sure. incredibly
0: well. Yeah, and, and it, it does add a little element of control to it.
2: Yeah, for now, sure.
4: It is a shame that Pandemic was fired by Pandemic Legacy <laughs> and Pandemic Legacy Season 2 because... Well, those games were so amazing and you'll find out all about them when we talk about our legacy game episode. Yes.
0: Beware of
1: spoilers.
2: We'll need to defend we'll need to have like our spoiler tag. Oh yeah, just, we like, absorb everyone will. <laughs> like all it's all spoilers
1: mm-hmm. all the way down. No, I, I I do really enjoy Pandemic. It was one of the earlier co-op games that I played. Uh, it I do think it's one of the ones that also suffers because it's so predictable from the Alpha Player problem. Right. Yeah. You're like, We need to do this thing right now, specifically, that is the best play we have, and it really takes a lot of the agency out of the individual players, and it's more like, well, what do we do as a group to do this one thing?
4: Right, and it, it, it is funny because Ghost Stories has that same problem where there really is only one optimal course through the game, and if somebody hones in on that, that player could very easily just bulldoze everybody else's
0: turn. That's been kind of an ongoing issue with cooperative games. We haven't talked about it explicitly that much, but basically the idea is that if one person sees and knows what to do, they're basically telling everybody else what to do to follow their plan, which is less fun for the other players.
2: And again, like Shadows Over Camelot, each character has their own unique power that allows them to violate the game rules in some way, which gives you some variety when you're playing all the specific roles. But also hidden some
3: cards, some communication limitations and the fact that one of the people's a traitor <laughs> or maybe
0: not.
2: Well, well, eh, player powers is, is what I'm saying, but like, but some of them are better than others
0: for sure. So, And Pandemic is another one where there are certain player powers that are functionally necessary to, to have a good chance at winning the game. But yeah, it's a little on the abstract side and yet works perfectly well with the theme. It always somehow feels a little dry when I'm playing, but I still enjoy it, um, which is why I think I like Pandemic Legacy so much because it takes a very solid game engine and put some really compelling story elements on top of it.
4: They did try some interesting things with the expansions. I don't really feel like we need to go into, but none of the expansions to Pandemic really hit me in a way that I felt
2: compelled to play them. The base game, though, is a really excellent game if you want to teach someone about modern board games. Yeah, it holds up very well. Because it is, is extremely straightforward, the rules are extremely simple, and if you give someone Pandemic and they like Pandemic, then you now know a branch of games that they will like. And, like, you can kind of slowly unveil more and more mechanics to determine where their limit is, because everyone has a mechanics limit.
4: Oddly enough, I did that with my brother, and the monster played Season two first. Like, I <laughs> cannot even tell you how upset I am oh. that he played Season oh. two first. first.
1: What Joe just said actually kind of triggered something in my brain for introducing people to how modern board games play, cooperative games are a great way to do it because there's not a competitive element to it and there's not as it's not as intimidating to a new player, right? Like if I'm saying, "Hey, you want to play a miniatures game with me?" Nobody wants to do that cuz cuz they don't know how to play and you'll stomp them. It, well, let's hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I don't, I'll be all set.
4: And in that same point, there's a whole group of people out there that The reason they don't like board games is because of the competition. Mm -hmm. And that's that this is, I think, board games for those people.
0: Just as far as the expansions go, I mean, they're certainly doing conceptually some really interesting things. There's the Rise of Cthulhu one where you're you're, you know, fighting off the cults. And there's one I think it's set in the Netherlands where you're basically trying to keep it from flooding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, conceptually that's really interesting. I, I don't think they're sufficiently different that I need to own all those games, but I like the fact that the base engine still works.
4: And the expansions I was talking about were the, the original expansions on the brink
0: and experimental medicine or whatever it was
4: where like on the brink, tried to introduce a hidden trader mechanic to the game, which I'm like, it, it felt really tacked on, but they also had one where like one of the diseases mutates halfway through the game. again, interesting theoretically, never really felt compelled to add on anything to the base Pandemic because it was such a solid game, I thought, until Legacy.
0: Came Obviously, we'll talk about more of those in our Legacy Games episode, but uh, it's really interesting because without getting into details, just was, the first season of Pandemic Legacy is pretty much mechanically the same as Pandemic, at least in the early going. And then the second season sort of turns a lot of that on its head mm-hmm. in, in very interesting ways.
2: Okay, so the next game on the list, a game I really, really enjoy, is Hanabi, released in 2010. Rexry, um uh,
0: Antoine Baza, who is the same guy as Ghost Stories, for yeah, those who were listening he earlier. Is,
2: he is. And uh, in this game, you have a hand of cards, and all you need to do is simply play all the cards in your hands and your, your allies' hands in order on the table. Hey, Joe, that sounds really easy. It's extremely easy, except you don't know the cards that are in your hands because they're facing away from you. Bum, bum, bum. I really love this game because on your turn, either you play a card or you use a a resource to give someone a piece of information. You can either point out all the same numbers of cards in the hand or the same colors of cards in the hand. And so it's all about like looking at everyone's hands and figuring out who you can give the most information to and also making sure the next person who's about to go has enough information so that they can do something useful on their turn. And I think you can discard a card to get resources back.
4: You can discard a card to get a clue back for the future. So it's on your turn. You take an action, which is give a clue, play a card, or discard a card. Right. And then if you discard a card, you get a clue that someone else can then give.
2: And so some of the fun of the game, uh, there are three ones, two twos, two threes, two fours, and one five. And so, obviously, if you have a one already played, you can, the other two ones are now safe to discard for clues, but you got to give the person who has those cards the information that they can get rid of those cards. So it's a, an interesting struggle in trying to make sure everyone has the right amount of information, and also every player has to kind of keep in mind all the information they've been given about all the cards that are in their hand, because it's not like someone gives you information about the card, you get to look at it. No, you just have to like position it in some way in your hand to remind yourself that this is an important card in some fashion, it's like, oh, this is an important card. Let me put it over down here, or something, and then and then three turns. Why was that important? Why was that important? Did I need to play
0: that now?
4: So, fascinatingly, I um I use this game to introduce some of my coworkers who do not play board games to modern board games, and they loved it. Like this game was light enough themed to not seem overly geeky or uncool, but was deep enough and really made their brains think in the right way that just hit them and they were like there was a good two year period where we would play this at our lunch break and it was a nice short enough game that you could just bring it out play a game of it put it away and continue on with life it takes what half an hour to do around yeah about
0: yeah. it's very elegant is is the word i like to use for games like this it's just you know really well put together and cooperative deduction games are rare Uh, Actually, this may be the first one that I'm aware of.
3: Actually, probably be Eagle Eye Agency, back to family pastimes. Uh
4: But you know what? I'm all about definitive statements, so Hanabi is the first co-op deductive game. Done. Okay. Now, um, when we played The Mind recently, that game gave me a very similar feeling to playing
0: Hanabi. except that you have literally no information well but
4: like it gave me that same sort of brain think that i use during hanabi and now i'm i'm really struggling between those two i need to play the mind again or some more before i really decide which one i like better but those two are
3: so the mind is all intuition and feel more than uh hanabi which is definitely deduction and communication
2: Hanabi's a game. The mind is an activity. <laughs> fair enough, fair
4: Great. enough. I'm just saying. But I, I see the, the similarities. Uh, it, it itched a very similar scratch. Scratched a very similar itch.
3: scratch that reverse. Oh. It. My <laughs> one criticism of Hanabi is that uh with a group that plays it a lot, there's a massive amount of extra subtle communication that leaks in through the cracks. And there's already some conventions that
2: it's like bridge, right? Like it's like in bridge, if you know, your you, partner, yeah. if you in bridge, when you know your partner, if you bid specific things, you're giving them this whole extra layer of information. Whereas like, I think, I don't think it's uncommon, right? If I've played an with a group of people enough that like, if I point out one card in your hand, the reason I pointed out that one card in your hand is you should play that card. Right. right yeah. Yeah. Like that's just like a convention that happens, right? Like yeah. it's just, well, and, it's a thing. Right.
4: And I definitely think that that's a part of the game because that, meta game changes with every group that you play it with and so like frank i don't think i've ever played hanabi with you but i've played with these guys which means if say you i joe and brian were playing hanabi i would know the subtle clues they're giving me brian and joe but, Frank, you could give me a piece of information. I'd be like, oh, God, what does that mean?
0: Or, or worse yet, oh, well, he had his pinky held up. So that means that this is a three. And that's not what he meant by it at
2: all. Like doing that is I don't like. Right. Like doing the like, let me. Yeah, that's just cheating. Little right? extra signals, but like yeah. I think that there's a, some amount of like, let's call it bridge, bridge mm-hmm. um, conventions. conventions, right? That you're like, hey, I'm going to point this card out to you. And the reason I'm pointing this card out to you is because I want you to play this card. Just trust me.
4: So in 2011, uh, one of my personal favorite games of all time has come out.
2: Board gaming change for all time.
4: <laughs> it did. It did. This was uh, mark your mark your calendars. 2011 it was the year that Greater Than Games uh, produced *Sentinels of the Multiverse*, which was designed by Christopher Bladell, Adam Robotero, and Paul Bender. This was, and is, my favorite rendition of a superhero game. In this game, each player picks a character, takes that character's pre-generated deck, and fights against a bad guy who also has a pre-generated deck in a location that also has a pre-generated deck. Every player takes a hand of four cards, and in order, plays a card, uses a power printed on a card that has been played, and then draws a card. Every deck operates off of those same three actions within a turn and are just so incredibly different. There are characters who are all about supporting other characters. The in-universe Superman basically sits there and waves an American flag back and forth to make everybody feel better and punch harder. Um, you
0: feel he, like you, if he was the Superman, he would do more punching. I mean, you'd that's... Yeah.
4: you think. But again, he's the lead from the... the
2: Mechanically, squad. what he's doing is he's assisting all the other superheroes all the time, so he's punching all on everyone's turn. <laughs> okay.
4: Um, the Speedster character is all about getting as many cards into her discard pile so that she can play her superpower punch that is based on how many cards are in your discard pile, which is different than the Iron Man character who is all about having different modes on and then he gets his mega cannon loaded up.
2: Stop, because he will go through every deck. Oh God, I really will. And
0: the important thing to realize is that when Mike says the Iron Man character, he means a similar to, but legally distinct from Iron Man character. We don't want to get anybody sued.
4: (laughs) Again, I love theme and these guys have... I mean, they've played the long con here. In that very first box that came out in 2011... I'm sorry, not the very first box in the reprinted edition that later came out after their very first box, which was then retconned into universe canon. Well, what I'm trying to get out here is they have gone back and they've made this entire storyline that you can follow through the cards. And in that early game of cards, you can see bad guys that don't appear until their last expansion. And they've just done this excellent job of world building, side note, If you're interested in finding out more and haven't already done, go listen to their podcast, The Letters Page. Just some free advertisement for those guys. They do such an amazing job.
2: It's definitely in my top five games. I really like how each of the villains feels very different and every hero plays very differently. Um, and some heroes have different levels of complexity. So like you can give a new player a complexity one and it will be very straightforward and there won't be a lot of thinking. They can just play cards, but like someone who's a complexity three will have to make a lot of choices and to kind of understand they had to build an engine functionally. That's the way most of the Complexity three ones ones work is they need to build some kind of engine to really get their damage going.
0: Yeah, I, I really like uh, the fact that they have sort of rated all the characters to make it easy for, for folks.
2: I haven't played this game as much as you guys
0: have because I don't spend as much time around Mike and I like rejecting it when he suggests it just to annoy him. It's certainly a good game. I do like the idea that, you know, like the way all the characters play very differently and the scenarios are, are very different. It it's, reminds me in many ways of kind of a, a precursor of something like Gloomhaven. We have got all the individual classes that each play so very differently and yet somehow manage to work together. So I would—I I have probably come off cooldown on that and would play it again, Mike, if, if you really want to. Oh I'm just— you're, you're going to regret this. No. We
1: just got the new expansion, which is the but, end of the multiverse.
4: But you
2: don't teach new players no. that at all.
3: Although, do the expansions get progressively much more complex? I found that the math involved in some of the expansions was painful.
2: There is some complexity sca- creep, I would say. There is. Um, I, I feel like they
4: also learned a lot with each expansion and is very clear looking from expansion to s- expansion, that they have figured some stuff out about their game. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I will admit, this is not a perfect game in any way. There are definitely combinations of villains and heroes that are, in my opinion, unwinnable. Like, I'm sure there are some people out there who have done it. I'm not going to discredit those folks, but... Um,
2: I have I have literally no idea how you win against the Matriarch.
4: Or, uh, like... E- even the, a little bit. In universe, evil... Superman like Red Sun Superman. I've beaten him. It's a trek though and there are definitely some heroes that you just might as well not even try.
1: One thing I do like about the game as well is there's no player elimination. So if your hero is defeated you simply flip over the character card and on the back you still have a power that you can contribute to the team so they can keep trying to move forward and keep you engaged in the game. Um, I'm not a huge fan of player elimination in general, so I was really happy to see that they they added that mechanic, so you're still part of the game. Yeah, and
4: the game does a great job. It's got amazing art that really ties into the theme. Like, it, it does look like comic book panels when you're playing it.
0: Now, I know they've done a lot of, of tie-in items. Have they actually done a Sentinel of the Multiverse comic book at this point?
4: They have a couple that have shipped with some of their Kickstarters. But, but not
0: like a monthly, no. which seems like an obvious thing for them, but I guess that's a whole other industry to get into. Um,
2: so they talked about it, and I think they even put up a Kickstarter, and it didn't have the response they wanted, so yeah. they canceled it. So, fair enough. Which is fair. I could see how some people would say, like, you know what, let's not. Yep, yeah, stick with what do. you're good at. Yeah. One of the other cool things about the game is that each villain has two levels, right? So there's a normal level and then there's a advanced level. And the advanced levels are normally uh, notably harder. Uh, And then in the app version of the game, which is a a direct translation of the game, which is really well done, um, they have, like, weekly missions, some of which that go beyond advanced into, like, ultimate and super double deadly and stuff and... Just to like give you a really crazy experience. The, the app is actually really good. The, the translation really works. Yeah.
4: And again, these guys have done an awesome job building a universe of comics that all have this great detailed background that they're talking about in their podcast. And you can see it in their cards. Like this is definitely a labor of love on their part. And it really does show.
0: Next item we had on our list was Eldritch Horror, which I don't think we're going to dive into too deeply. Um, basically, most of us, I think, feel that it is sort of a cleaned up and better version of
1: Arkham Horror.
3: Until the next time they do that, which probably will happen about the time you're listening to
1: this. They just really yeah, then they yeah. just are releasing third edition, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I
0: find it gets rid of a lot of the fiddly bits that are in Arkham Horror and generally seems to play faster.
4: Well, and it, it really is that next logical step in how do we make Arkham Horror a better game. Right. And it has this really great, like, globe-trotting scale where, hey, this really is a global event that is
2: happening. And I, I really like the game, but definitely, like, some you lose some of the... Because of the amount it's zoomed out, you lose some of the individual focus. Like, in some times, it doesn't even feel super... Mythosy, because you're so zoomed out, right? Like you lose kind of the individual horror a little bit, right? Because like, oh, hey, there's a monster here. You can just walk away from it, right? Like mm-hmm. monsters are kind of like let's call it less deadly. And like Jason and Mike were talking before we started recording about how in the Arkham Horror card game, right? Like, hey, you'll go into a gate and like that will be an entire scenario. In this game, right? You'll you go into a gate as Fungshi thing you do on your turn yeah it's a card it's a card and like don't get me wrong i love the heck out of the game i think it's i think it's really great we still play it a lot right it still gets to the table a lot because it's a really great game and it has a lot of great theme and it's a lot of fun and it plays the right number of people for our gaming group mm-hmm but certainly it's less horrorful than some of the other Arkham games
0: yeah and and like Arkham horror before it it is getting to the point where expansion bloat is a problem yeah. again you want to select carefully a few that you want to include in any given game
2: well it's like, so like one of the things I think it did really well is it has the concept of a prequel card which indicates how you set up the game and you don't add in extra expansion boards unless the prequel card tells you you should right and of course you, you can really
0: choose not. one if you really want to play the and you can Antarctic. A mission, right? Well, you can
2: choose well, or or a specific bad guy will also add the board, right. right? Right, but like you don't, you won't like randomly add a board if the precursor doesn't call for it or the bad guy doesn't call for it, which is nice. Like yeah. the, I think all in all, like the the game structure is really nice. There's certainly a lot of expansions at this point, and there's a lot of some of them add mechanics which are, let's call it, not a little fiddly, right? Like they added cataclysms in the most recent expansion which can destroy cities and it feels really fiddly. Mm. Um Like they've definitely jumped the shark I
4: think at this point which <laughs> again I think Fantasy Flight's aware of with the release of Arkham Horror
2: 3rd edition. They,
0: they are nothing if not savvy game publishers. Still a
2: great game though. Still yeah. just a straight up great game.
0: Another one that I think merits at least a quick discussion is Dead of Winter, which is a 2014 release from Plaid Hat Games by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega. It is in many ways a fairly standard by this stage cooperative game. You're each playing a handful of different characters who are trying to survive in the post-zombie apocalypse situation. You've got a central compound where you're all kind of camped out and you need to go out to various locations and scavenge for supplies where dangerous things will happen. There are a couple things that I think it does that are interesting uh, in particular. One is that you each start out with two characters and you can gradually add more, which is a good thing because the game can be extremely deadly. At any given time, if you're traveling from one place to another, it's basically, I think, a 1 in 12 chance that you just die. And because zombie bites are very contagious, if you happen to be bitten by a zombie in a place where there are other characters, also other people are going to die. So it can be cascade very quickly.
4: I believe this game came out with the rise in popularity of the zombie genre right in there
0: with... um... Zombicide? Not Zombicide. What's the TV show? The Walking
4: Uh, Walking Dead. The Walking
0: Dead. Yeah, I mean, the the 2010s were the era of zombies and still are. Yeah. And this
4: game does give
0: that excellent feel of like, hey,
4: you could be doing just fine and then tragedy strikes and now you're dead.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's got neat things in that each turn or each round functionally, when everyone has a turn, there is a a particular crisis that you have to deal with, which will require you to accumulate a certain amount of food or fuel or medicine or whatever. And, you know, everyone has to contribute those. And if you don't have enough of that stuff, you will fail and bad things happen. Uh, Cards that are in a discard pile are are what's called the the trash. And if you have too much trash lying around, then morale goes down, which is one of the ways you can lose the game. There's just a lot of little bits that thematically work rather well together. The other thing it does that's really interesting and and it's... um, it's actually in the title because the full title is Dead of Winter, a Crossroads game, are these crossroad cards, which are basically random events that each time you take a turn, the player next to you will draw one of these cards. And if you fulfill certain conditions on your turn, either by going to a certain place or using a certain character or whatever it might be, they will sort of interrupt with a little story-driven anecdote. There is a, a certain amount of random with that because a lot of times you just draw the card and it's like, well, that doesn't happen. But there are some neat extra story elements that go on in there conceptually
4: i really like the crossroad cards in that game they just never felt good playing them because 90 percent of the time it was these conditions can never be met because it would be like is the current player controlling x character no all right you might as well put that card down which You know, you you really don't want to give that player any indication that that card can't be met because that card was supposed to build tension that anything they did on their turn could cause an event.
0: The other thing I, I think that is unfortunate about those in the in the physical game is that basically when you read out the description of what's going on and you have to make a decision, you can see what the impact of your decision is going to be immediately. A neat thing that they do in the sort of assistant app is it will give you the text, it will tell you what your decisions are, but you don't get to see the game mechanic implications of those, which I think adds, ratchets up the tension nicely. Yeah.
3: Actually, the one thing this breaks from the traditional co-op mold is that everyone has their own personal objective. So it's not strictly a straight co-op. I mean, in order to win, everyone has to survive. Yay, co-op. But you also have to finish your own quest of your own thing.
0: Yeah, that's really nice. Your your character's mission may be to end the game with three medicine cards in your hand. And if your current crisis is, you know, we need to have enough medicine, and you're like, well, no, I don't have any, I can't contribute it because you want to save those for the end of the game, that may get everybody killed. So that's a, a nice little additional tension grabber. And there are mechanics in the game for the rest of the colony to basically vote someone off the island at which point they go off and they get their own you know objective which is generally you know make sure those bastards pay for what they did to me um so it's got a number of of interesting elements and ways it can go
2: it also has a hidden traitor mechanic that uh, out of the start of the game right Like you can shuffle it in and like the base rules are technically everyone has like one in number of player times two chance of becoming the single hidden trader um if you do that i normally don't because i don't like hidden traders in this specific game and then they have some specific condition which is they're actually normally pretty hard they're like hey meet fulfill these three conditions and then have the game end and so those can be just as challenging as like oh hey win the game and also have collected one firearm one medicine and one food
4: isn't the hidden trader mechanic in uh, Dead of Winter a kind of a shout shout out back to Shadows over Camelot where you might have a hidden trader, you also might not just right. depending on
2: how yep. those cards are. Yep. Intentionally. Apply. Yeah, definitely intentionally so. the
0: same like, same origin.
4: Again, theoretically I really like that, but going back to what Frank had said, which is a direct result of the hidden trader mechanic, like it can feel really Bad as a player to say, "Hey, I help everybody win, but I don't win because I didn't." We
2: don't have randomly barricades. connect yeah.
4: three food or mm-hmm. something like that. Which, like, I get thematically is like, "Hey, sacrifice for the greater good," but like, as a player, well, I won, but everybody else won better.
0: Right, and and the other thing is, it's it's entirely possible for. Everyone, you know, all the survivors to win the game, and none of them to actually win the game. Yep, it's like we have we have all survived, but the world is miserable, so we would be better off dead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, again, thematically appropriate. Uh, the last one I wanted to bring up is a uh, a relatively recent one. It was a, a Kickstarter in 2017 called Shipwreck Arcana by Maramorph Games. A guy by the name of Kevin Bishop designed it. And it is a cooperative deduction game that I think flew under the radar for a lot of people. I'm a big fan of it. Basically, the premise is this. There are sort of numbers from one through seven. And each turn, you're going to have two of those random numbers face down in front of you. Basically, you're going to play one of them on one of the cards in the middle of the table, which tells the other players some information about what your other tile is. And basically, they need to look at where you played it, what you have, what other tiles are visible, and try and deduce what your other number is. And you can get a surprising amount of information by just playing one number tile out. The cards you're playing on the middle are things like, you know, if both of your your fates are what they call the two numbers, but if, if both of your tiles are the same number, play one of them here. Well that one's super easy. Actually I don't think that's a card. That would be too easy. But it's sort of thing, you know, if your two fates add up to a total lower than six, play it here. So if you play a two, they know you have a one, two, or three. Basically, once you've played your card, you have to sit there and listen to the rest of the table argue about what that means, and, well, if he had a four, he would have played it here, because that would have given us more information, so he probably doesn't have a four. And basically, they have to unanimously agree on having you reveal your number, and if they vote correctly, you get points, if they vote incorrectly, you get functionally negative points and if you get a certain number of either positive or negative points, the game ends. I just think it is is super clever. It's another game kind of like Love Letter that is just elegant in its design. I got that one from the Kickstarter and have not regretted it since. Except that the back of one of my tiles has... The dots going in the opposite direction from all the others. It's like a ninety degree rotation, which has no effect on gameplay, but makes my OCD absolutely I'm crazy. Sure if you
2: told them they would replace it. I know, but it's
0: just like I don't want to be that guy, but I am. that, guy. <laughs> you that but guy. you are that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm.
2: I really guy. like shipwrecked Arcana. I really love the tension of looking at your two tiles and thinking about all the options you play, and then putting it down, and have someone someone at the table look at the play you just made and said, "Oh, well, clearly he doesn't have this because of this," and you're like. Oh, no, that's what I have. I did bad. I did a real bad job. I'm terrible at games. <laughs> oh, it's so great.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there is um, a lot of sort of theme and backstory elements in the game which don't really have any bearing on the game and frankly don't make a lot of sense. But it doesn't matter because the art is pretty oh, in the game. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah,
4: like, if there is a theme there, it is unobvious. It's,
0: it's trippy. I'll, yeah, I'll put it that like, way.
4: But it is a really interesting game of math that is an awesome exercise and
1: group thing. I have my own copy. It's literally sitting right behind Brian's head right now. And uh, I introduced it to a couple of friends that they specifically game with a group of gamers that hate cooperative games. Just will not and even entertain the idea. And I explained this game to him because I didn't have my copy. And, and he purchased it cuz he's like this sounds really interesting I want to give it a shot and it was a huge hit they play it constantly now like it's just it's a very interesting unique take on on a deduction game
0: It goes pretty quickly I think it's a lot of fun
2: If you're going to buy the game I highly recommend you also get the Kickstarter bonus I think they also sell it on their website They do Yeah it's yes. like a separate add-on You pack. should get that add-on because those cards make the game it's like the base cards are interesting. The Kickstarter cards are like, well, what if we made you do a bunch of math? And so it makes it the game feel a lot harder. Right? So like, obviously, if you're playing this with like younger kids or something, probably not the best. But if you're playing it with a group of adults who all have reasonable educations, right? Like, they add a really interesting spice when one of them comes up and it's like, hey, if one of your cards is three away from this one and also is the only one of its kind of showing place it here. And it's like, well, what? I don't understand with math. It's so hard. So yeah. It certainly can be swingy because if you get
0: a a bad set of cars in front of you and it's like, well, none of these are going to tell anyone anything. The other thing that I I didn't mention in the the brief mechanics rundown is. As you place cards, uh, the cards in the middle will eventually fade after you place a certain number of tokens on them. They go away, and you know that will cause a penalty unless you guess correctly. So timing when you're going to place the last token on a card also becomes a, a, another factor you have to think of. But I've gone on about it a lot, but it's a really good game. It's not expensive. I highly recommend it.
2: So the last game we want to talk about in kind of the episode proper is uh, a game that I really enjoy uh, called Spirit Island. It was released in 2017 by Greater Than Games, designed by R. Eric Reus. And you are a group of spirits trying to defend an island. And like much like Greater Than Games' other game, Sentinels of Multiverse, each spirit has uh, a couple different complexities and has different things that they're good at. So there's one spirit who's really good at, like, defending the coast, and there's one spirit who's really good at, like, defending the center of the island, and one spirit who's really good at, like, burning all the invaders. And so it's very interesting because each of the spirits has some things they're good at and some things they're less good at, and each player is has their own board, and their own board kind of instructs how they play, right? So every character has a very different starting position and has very different starting cards. And there's just a lot of mechanics going on. So there's a lot of fiddly bits in the game for sure. Um, but like all the Philly bits, I feel like gel really good together to make a very interesting game as you're trying to desperately push off these invaders who are moving into the island and building structures and try you're trying to get them all off of your island.
4: Well, and much like with Sentinels of the Multiverse, Spirit Island is all about how the individual characters interact with each other. Because no one character in the game can do everything. You kind of have to compensate for each other's weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And... Again, like you were saying, the spirit of lightning is all about generating a lot of energy, which is the in-game currency, but then spending it just as fast. Whereas some of the other players will take longer to build their engine up, but can do more uh, variety of things with that energy. And the fiddly bits of the game, I think, help add to the complexity and help take away from the alpha player syndrome because i cannot grok how some of the elements within the game the the evil part of the game are even happening. Like, it's it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a real fan of this game from a thematic standpoint, because there are so many board games out there where you're the people who are out here colonizing new lands and exploring and pacifying the natives and that kind of thing, and this sort of turns that whole thing on its head. It's like, hey, we're perfectly happy here on our island with the villagers, and then these invaders from overseas come, and they're trying to take everything over and enslave our people, and the spirits just say, no. Yeah, it's
3: right? kind of a, oh, Settlers of Catan? Yeah, screw those guys. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, it's got some neat bits in there where you can say, I mean, in the in the base game they're sort of generic invaders, but there are cards you can say specifically, okay, these are the French. These are the Portuguese. They have different powers, they have different abilities, they have different difficulties and strengths. It's just really thematically fun. It's it's certainly not an introductory game. You know, you'd want people to be familiar with pandemics, some other stuff. There's there's a lot of rules going on, but it's really well put together. Yeah. And of course there are more expansions with more spirits and things. So uh that's another one that, that I, I'm, I haven't played much, but would be happy to play more.
2: I really like how in the game, right, So every turn, uh, a location comes up for where the island people arrive at, right? So hell, they'll, they'll arrive at mountains. And then next turn, they build in mountains. And the next turn, they ravage mountains, right? That that specific card actually moves through all these positions. So you you have a bunch of knowledge about what is going to be happening in the future, so you can start planning for the next two or three turns related to what the specific invaders are going to be doing. We need
0: to drive those guys out of the mountains before they ravage everything. Right.
4: But again, because when that card moves, another card will come up and take its place. You're constantly having to plan two moves ahead. And it's just, it's not a thing that any one person, I comprehend that cascade of events easily.
3: Well, combine that with having to know your particular deck, the cards you have available, what you can do, all of your energy allocation, it's way too complex. I think it's completely immune to alpha. Yeah, and
0: there is is kind of a deck building element in it as well, and that you can, you know upgrade uh, or add new powers from your own deck and there's also sort of a, some generic spells that you can add in uh, or spirit powers yeah it's just it's it's a deep game but it's it's very clever
2: yeah i like it a lot so
0: that's sort of the end of our official list one thing i did want to mention is that when we're going through this i'm sure a number of people you know who have been listening have been saying things like oh my god why didn't you talk about x or y or how could you skip Uh, There are a lot of cooperative games that we're sort of saving for other episodes, things like Gloomhaven. I mean, Gloomhaven could be an episode unto itself. It's a cooperative game, it's a legacy game, it's a dungeon crawl, it's got elements of a paragraph game. It's a, a great cooperative game, it's probably my favorite game ever, but I don't think cooperative is the right place to talk about it. There, there are a number of games along those lines that fit better into different genres. So certainly, if you guys want to put comments on our, our Facebook page, our web page, tell us what obvious, hideous, unforgivable oversights we've had in our list or stuff we may not know about would like to learn more about. I know there are at least a couple that we've talked about in earlier episodes that, that would fit in here.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely wanted to, kind of since we're out of the episode proper, I definitely wanted to bring up Aeon's End again because I've been playing the garbage out of that game and I really <laughs> love it. And, like, it, it would have fit in this episode if we'd, we wouldn't have done it in Deck Builders, right? Because it's both a Deck Builder and a Cooperative game. And it is one of my favorite games right now. So I'm they're coming out with a Legacy game version of it in about a month, and I'm hyper, hyper excited. Of course, by the
0: time you hear this, it will already have been out, and and you will be able to tell Joe that he was right or wrong to have been excited about it. That's
2: true. Right now, I'm just excited, which is great. I'm at the point where it's like, oh, this game is eventually coming out. Hooray. So I definitely think that's worth bringing up. I think it would definitely be worth talking about. Like, hey, Gloomhaven's great. It's a purely cooperative game. It's also amazing. I totally agree.
0: XCOM, Mansions of Madness, a couple of the electronic ones we talked about go into that cooperative
3: mode. I've heard of a game called Too Many Bones, you might be familiar with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. That is that is another one that could be an episode unto
1: itself especially cuz I have 80 pounds of expansions
0: sitting scattered did across my game table. At we...
1: I've got a couple just pure co-ops that we didn't talk about. Um, one of which is a game based on World War 1 which is pretty rare called The Grizzled hmm. where you you're playing oh, yeah. World War 1 soldiers basically just trying to survive World War I. <laughs> you go out on missions, um, you're playing cards, and you're essentially trying not to get three of the same type of thing out. Uh, that could be um, like items like, uh, I think it's bullets, um, whistles, and I can't remember the Gas third. Gas masks. Gas masks, yeah. Or types of weather out. And so it's a, it's a game of trying to manage, you know, well, I have these cards in my hand that I have to play. Do we, can we get out as many of these as we can before we fail the mission? And it's a it's a great it's a great game for co op because you are all definitely trying to work together, but you can't tell each other what you have in your hand. So it's a lot of why did you play this thing that has two of this item, and I have nothing but this thing in my hand? We have to quit the the mission. We can't can't succeed at it. Um, it's a it's a great game. They came out with an expansion that adds a little bit of, uh, more nuance to it. But uh, Curtis is obsessed with it. No, the Gristle is <laughs> a
2: great game. I like it a lot. It's it's very it's very well done.
1: Well, yeah. It's
3: also really hard.
1: It is yeah, extremely it's, hard. Especially if you play with the traps rule. It's like, why am I even bothering? It's, oh, yeah. It's impossible.
0: <laughs> uh, talking about hard co-ops, another one that I finally got to play recently uh, was Black Orchestra, oh, which yes. is the the game about assassinating Hitler. And it's... it's <laughs> And I've apparently stolen that from, from Mike's <laughs> list of ones he wanted to talk about. So go ahead, Mike. Uh, yeah, I
4: mean, Black Orchestra is by GameSloot, and it was uh, 2016 by Philip DuBerry. But yeah, no, that game... We played it at a convention. I believe we've talked about it before on the podcast. And it has kind of that pandemic feeling. But it was really interesting group thing going on in that game. Like, I liked the amount of cooperation that had.
0: Yeah, it's neat because you have to balance trying to gather the things you need to assassinate Hitler. Because that's your ultimate goal. But you can't be too suspicious. And you have to sort of get committed enough to do it. And the sort of make it or break it moment, the sort of thing that leads people to either love or hate this game, is that you can have all of the tools you need and be in the right position and be totally committed to the mission. And it still comes down to a die roll, and you still may fail. And there are some people that absolutely hate that. I you know, again, it's thematically accurate, but maybe not quite as satisfying as a player, but really, what you're trying to do is just optimize those settings. Uh, also the game goes through a number of stages which have some historically appropriate events that happen at a certain period in the war. I really enjoyed that.
4: Especially the part where if conditions aren't right, some of those events might not happen, which, uh, like, we had one come up in our playthrough that was like the uh, p- a peace day celebration or something, and it didn't happen because... Uh, <laughs> there was no
0: peace to celebrate. There
4: was no peace. Hitler had too much military or something like yeah. that. Um, but I also liked how it becomes easier to assassinate Hitler the longer the game goes, because his popularity is in decline, the war effort's not going well, and so it, it actually does become slightly easier the
0: longer Yes, the game if goes. you can stay out of prison long enough okay, to get to that
2: goes. point. Yeah. Plus, like, who doesn't like a game where you get to assassinate Hitler? I, I mean... know!
4: Well, again, one that I wanted to bring up, just to, to dive a little bit deeper was the arkham horror card game um this i think has been my favorite rendition of an arkham horror story of all of the games that we've talked about today i mean it it has this deck building itch that i scratched and it feels kind of that same niche as like magic the gathering all of the characters play incredibly differently, and the story that it tells through simple mechanics are fascinating.
1: Yeah, and one thing that that as the game evolves, they keep changing gameplay aspects. Every time when you're like, okay, well, I think they've run out of tricks now. The next expansion oh, comes no. out, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, wow, I I did not see that coming. Like the most recent set has been all about manipulating the was it the chaos bag I think or whatever the thing that you pull the tokens out that determine whether or not you will more often than not, you fail your, your, your test, but now now you can help remove bad things out of that temporarily, which is entirely new mechanic.
4: Well, not only that, but the, the campaigns themselves are also very different. Like one of the early campaigns was all about just bring all the bullets and never stop shooting. <laughs> In this most recent campaign, fighting things is not the way that you win and running away is a much more sustainable long-term plan. Yeah. Which any game that can say, hey, you know that way you were playing this game? Don't do that anymore. And still be successful, I think, is is a really good sign of design.
3: Much more Lovecraftian, too.
0: Yeah, oh, exactly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And call of oh, fool, yeah. you do not want to be
0: shooting the bad guys.
4: But the fascinating thing about this is the the first
3: time we played this
4: game, like, Jason and I hated this game. <laughs> yeah, like, this game is garbage. What is going on?
1: Yeah, the original core set, the scenarios punish you regardless of what choice you make. And the deck building is limited to, like, four different cards you can do. Yeah,
0: like, the
4: game has definitely improved with more options.
0: Speaking of games that go into a a wide variety of different options and storylines, I I did want to mention Time Stories. The game... I really like—it's, uh, it, again, kind of a love-it-or-hate-it one because each expansion is basically a thing, a story that you play through once because you more or less, you know, know what's happened. I mean, if you wait long enough, you can, you'll you forget about it and play it again. But it's um, basically um, Groundhog Day meets Quantum Leap and that in each game you're, you're jumping into the body of, of some local person in whatever time or timeline you're exploring. And you go around um, investigating trying to figure out what's going on. And the first time through a given scenario, you're going to run out of time before you've even figured out what's going on. And basically then you go back to the beginning. And then you know, okay, well this time we know we don't need to talk to that guy. That's a waste of time. But we got to go to this room to get the key so we can open the other room. So you're basically learning how to solve the game in the amount of time you have. The scenarios vary wildly in terms of difficulty and how they're handled there's a sort of zombie apocalypse one which involves a lot of a lot of shooting and fighting and running there are some deductive ones there's some mystery solving um the one thing that bothers me about this game is that their translations into english are consistently a bit subpar. You can usually figure out what they mean, but in a game that involves so much text and storytelling, it's it's disappointing. But um, I like it a lot. I still grab all the new scenarios when they come out and try and get them played.
2: I think it might be one of my favorite games, in all honesty. Like the the combination of time travel and extremely in-depth story, and they've done a really great job with, like, each scenario has a phase where you're just doing something that's totally different than any of the other previous scenarios, and, like, they've done a really good job of being very clever with their core mechanics.
0: And uh, another one for Mike, our, our theme master, is there is kind of an ongoing, interesting meta plot hmm. that's evolving as you hear what's going on behind the scenes with the corporation you work for. I want to talk to you some you
2: later without these guys here, just to tell you a thing that happened to us, that to see if it happened to you guys.
4: <laughs> Wait, on, on that same lines,
0: one thing we haven't really talked about
4: with these co-op games is there is definitely a, a modicum of bring your own fun to this game. I know Joe and I are playing through the time stories campaigns with some friends and just we'll have a Sunday morning. We do a big breakfast. We drink mimosas and play through a campaign. Like I think we would have a very different experience if we played with a different group for one. Like I know with like a lot of deduction based games, Brian, you have a a group of friends who are all about, like, escape rooms and stuff like that. Like, I don't know that I would have as much fun with that group because I'm not that good at those, so.
2: (laughs) As long as I get one clever thing in each escape room, I'm fine. And I got one clever thing last time I did escape room, so it was fine. Excellent.
3: So, yeah, I think I've got only one game that we haven't mentioned that we keep playing a lot around our house. It's called Zombie Tower 3D. Which, yeah, there's those expressions of what the hell is Frank Frank, talking about this time? This is the nature (laughs) of Frank.
4: Frank, I'm looking at your your screen right now where you've got this game pulled up, and it is like... What is even going on
3: here? <laughs> so at Zombie Tower 3D, you're in an apartment building filled with zombies, <laughs> and you all separately need to get out, except you're working together, but you're all stuck in your own part of the apartment building. The game starts with you building this really elaborate 3D model structure of an apartment building. Um, it's Japanese. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Frank, Thanks I want to, to set
4: the, the scene for those listening <laughs> at home. Um, this 3d model right here is gray on gray on gray and it looks like somebody has unfolded the classic nes gaming system and turned it into (laughs) like a platform like it is not the best design standpoint
3: oh it's actually brilliant when you actually put the thing together it's really stable and goes together without any clips or anything it's a genius of paper art (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's japanese how could it
0: my main question here is is why aren't we playing this now i
3: (laughs) you know i just thought of it but uh i mean generally zombies come in you have two possible escape plans you're wandering around um the apartment building searching the floors looking for items and everything zombies will spawn they will try to kill you death is really fast um i mean do you know it can go from three seconds or literally one turn of, uh, I'm kind of in trouble and I'm dead the next turn and game over. Um, I call fast zombie bullshit. Yeah. But pretty much, <laughs> Thanks, I mean, Zoe. You're playing completely your own game, uh, except that you can talk, work out which of the two possible escape routes that the three of you can go for. And there are slots, little holes in the wall that you can pass cards to each other. <laughs> there are, physically, you have to pass the cards through the hole in the wall. I think there's a video which is adorable Japanese chibi and shows a couple of like Japanese schoolgirls playing.
2: Probably should go into the show notes. (laughs) It it will now. That sounds fascinating. I must learn more. I think the thing that's definitely worth mentioning here is that like, I think co-op tend to be the games we get to the table most often, right? Just with all of our various friend groups and their kind of gaming preferences, I know, like, John prefers co-ops. I know Ben prefers co-ops. Like, we have a lot of friends who just prefer co-ops as, like, a gaming mechanism. So, like, if anyone out there has any recommendations for anything thing we didn't mention here, please tell us. Because, like, more co-ops that we haven't played, you know, awesome. Brian,
4: can you tell our listeners where they could tell us about these games?
0: I, I will do that. In fact, I have a pre-recorded segment on the very topic that I'm going to play right now. So please come check out our website, which is AscentOfBoardGames.com, or you can email us at AscentOfBoardGames at gmail.com. Our Facebook account, because Facebook is weird, is Facebook.com slash AscentBoardGames. They don't like the word of in there, apparently. Twitter is AscentOfGames. Uh, apparently AscentOfBoardGames is too long for a Twitter username. We try to be consistent, but the internet won't let us. Discord, though, is discord.ascentofboardgames.com, or you can find us on Instagram, which we don't have much on yet, but we're working on it, at instagram.com slash Games. Those are long and inconsistent and a pain to transcribe, so your best bet is probably just to go to our website, which, once again, is ascentofboardgames.com, and just click on the links there. We've got a poll for what we should do for our next episodes. We've got information on us. You can even see pictures of us and recognize that we all have great faces for podcasting. And um, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
3: Pandemic? We didn't add pandemic? Oh yeah, we should make a mention crap. that one. That's, that's, <laughs> that's probably a game we should talk about at some point. Wow, yeah, was a total, total
0: misfire Oops. on us.